is in his final days before his death, burial, and resurrection. As we move into chapter 22, as we're going to finish it, we're going to begin reading at verse 23, that Jesus has already come into Jerusalem as we open chapter 21. It's the last week of his life. It is Passover. As they came into Jerusalem, the people were, were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As there was a great multitude waving the palm branches, ascribing to him the title of deity. And as he is there at the temple, after he cleanses the temple, he rebukes the religious leaders that we know that he would then bring healing to the people that couldn't walk, those who couldn't see. And he's teaching the people as well. And we know the gospel writers tell us that as he's teaching them at this time, that the people are listening to him very intently. Matter of fact, they're hanging on to every word that he is speaking. The religious leaders who are upset at Jesus, very indignant, wanting to put him to death, they come and they interrupt him publicly. And they're trying to find a reason to accuse him. They're trying to trap him, trying to find a reason where the authorities could come and arrest him. That's what we saw last week as he was asked that questions by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And as we looked at that very carefully, they're hoping that Jesus will answer, no, don't pay taxes. So the Herodians will run to the Roman authorities and say, you need to arrest him, take him. That's what they're hoping would happen is what Dr. Luke tells us in his gospel. But we know that Jesus, as he's there ministering to them, that he would give that answer, render the things to Caesar that are, belong to Caesar and render to God the things that belong to God. Show me the coin. Show me the Daenerys. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. But the thing that I want us to always remember is this. Do you render to God the things that are God? And as, after that exchange, the people marveled. And Mark's gospel tells us, as well as Luke, records that Jesus, after that, would see a widow given two mites in the temple chest. You know the story. Jesus said she is given out of her poverty and put in all that she has, Render to God the things that are God's. And then he points out that woman who gave all to the Lord. A powerful illustration for them to see and for us to consider this morning. You see, the Lord wants our hearts. He wants our first fruits of our time, of our resources, of our service, of our devotion to him. He doesn't want just the leftovers. So they came and they challenged his authority they came and they challenged his integrity. And now they come and they're going to challenge his theology. Now, as I talked about the different religious sects and, and political sects of Israel that were on the scene at that time, they're coming together with one cause, and that is to put Jesus to death. The Pharisees, they have been leading this charge against Jesus to, to want to destroy him, have him arrested. They're afraid of the people right now. They're going to get their break here in just another day or so when Judas comes to them and says, I will betray him into your hands. And the Pharisees were 6,000 in the land. They were the ones that were going to keep the most minute details of the tradition of the elders and what the scribes had interpreted as the scriptures and as they made interpretations of the scripture, how to keep the Sabbath law. And so they said, we're Pharisees. We're the dedicated ones is what that word means, that we're going to keep the most minute details of what the scribes had interpreted the scriptures to say. 
And so many of the scribes ended up being Pharisees. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Herodians were not so much a religious sect as a political sect. And they were ones that were very loyal to Herod's family and to the Roman authorities. Uh, That's why, again, they came with the Pharisees, teaming up with them to ask him that question about taxes. We know that as we read the terms in the Gospels, chief priests and elders, that the chief priests, most of them were Sadducees, and they are high-ranking priests. And the elders were men from the leading families in Judaism that traced back to the book uh, to the book of or the time of Ezra in the Old Testament, right after the the captivity was over of Babylon. So here they come. Here comes the Sadducees, and we read in verse twenty-three of chapter twenty-two that the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked them. So the Sadducees, this religious sect, come on the scene. Now, Matthew records here that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Matter of fact, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't really believe in much of anything. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always at odds with each other, even though they made up the group of Pharisees and the group of the Sadducees made up what is called the Sanhedrin Council, that is the Jewish Supreme Court. We will see them mentioned when we see the arrest of Jesus. He will go on before the religious leaders, three religious trials, and then he'll be handed over to Pilate, three civil trials that he will go through before he's led to Calvary to be pinned to that Roman cross. But the Sanhedrin Council over, you know, seen by the high priest, who is Caiaphas at this time, that it was made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they were always at odds with each other, always arguing, didn't have much to do with each other, just like the Herodians as well, and the other religious sects. And they band together to come against Jesus. They band together to come against him. And people do the same thing today, don't they? There are groups, secular groups, that will come against you and me, they will come against us because we believe in Jesus. We believe the Word of God is true. We believe the Bible. And we see that happening today. They don't like each other. They have nothing in common, but they will come together to come against Christianity. So here are the Sadducees. They are well-educated. They're influential. They're wealthy. They're sophisticated. They're worldly-minded, and they like to cooperate with the Romans, which helped them keep their privileged status. And they come to Jesus asking this question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... That if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So what is that all about? Here's the other thing that, to remember about the Sadducees. That they accepted only as God's word the first five books of the Bible. And that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right, the books of Moses, the first five books. If you were to quote from the prophetic books or from the poetic books, um, they would not accept that as Scripture. So they only believed the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and did they consider to be inspired by God. So they come asking this question. They, they come and they say, well, Moses says, and you can just kind of hear their voice. The law of Moses says that if a man marries and dies, leaving no offspring, then she is to marry his brother. And the reason was so that the dead brother's name would continue on, the, the, his legal line. 
would continue to give inheritance to. It was very important in ancient Israel that your name, your inheritance would continue on. So if you're married and you don't have any offspring and you die, then Deuteronomy chapter 25 says that your wife is to marry your brother. And he's to continue on having offspring with her to carry on the, the name. The husband's brother takes her as wife to perpetuate the dead brother's name. So they're asking him about that law from the book of Deuteronomy. But they set up this scenario in that. In verse 25, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So here is this, this woman who is married to an individual, this man. And he dies, they have no offspring, so she ends up being taken by the husband, her dead husband's brother. And then he dies. So another brother takes her as wife. And this goes down seven times. And when it comes to tell us, as they ask this question, what will happen in the resurrection, which, by the way, we don't believe in, in heaven whose wife will she be? For all seven had her. And Jesus answered and said to them in verse 29, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So a couple things here. They ask this question. They come to Jesus. Remember, they come into him publicly, trying to confuse him, trying to back him into a corner. They set up this scenario of this woman taking seven brothers to make the resurrection seem ridiculous, uh, confusing, um, that it's not practical. And again, today, people do the same thing with you and me, don't they? They will come and they will challenge us concerning the scriptures. So what about this? And what about that? Being on uh, the radio, Calvary Live, I get that. Or I get emails. You know, what about the person who never heard about Jesus? What about this thing? What about that? Trying to cause confusion to... to and they'll try to back you into a corner. And that's why it's important that we're going to see Jesus' answer here that is given to them. And as we consider it, here is, first of all, is Jesus says um, that you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. There are Sadducees today that will quote parts of the Bible, but they don't take what the Bible says as a whole. They only believe the books of Moses. They didn't believe in, in the rest of the scriptures that, that the Pharisees and the others would believe that you and I believe it. So there are Sadducees that are here on the scene that are really mocking the resurrection. They're trying to embarrass Jesus, bring confusion to the people. And there are those today that I've known that maybe they're highly educated in theology. Maybe they're highly educated in religion, but they don't know the scriptures. They don't know the word of God. And as you keep coming and as you're growing in the word of God and as you have your devotions and you keep growing through the books of the Bible, you're going to have godly wisdom that is going to be able to address those things that people ask, to be able to bring clarity and understanding to people. So here is, you know, Jesus answering. He said this, that, that you will, as uh, verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. 
He did not say that you will be an angel. He said you'll be like the angels. You'll be like the angels in that you're not given to marriage. You're not going to be reproducing, having children. You're not going to have physical relations. You'll be like the angels. So I just want to make that clear because sometimes we hear at a funeral or with people that are trying to be, you know, give hope or give words of comfort that, you know, somebody passes away. Well, God needed another angel. Or they're an angel in heaven. Well, they're not an angel. Uh, that we are going to be glorified. We're going to be resurrected. We are actually, First Corinthians tells us, that we're going to judge the angels. And we'll talk more about that at another time. But as we know that you'll be like the angels, you're not going to be given in marriage in heaven. There is no marriage. Now, some of you might think, well, that's disappointing. I don't know. Maybe some of you are saying, praise God. I don't know. (laughs) But Jesus says, I just had to say that. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. By the way, that is a Mormon doctrine. And if you have coworkers that are Mormons or neighbors, or maybe some of you got family members that are Mormons and you're aware of this doctrine, but they believe that there's marriage in heaven. They will say, my son, my daughter's getting married, and they're being sealed in the temple for all eternity. And the reason that they do that is because it follows other doctrines that are false, that they believe in God the Father and God the Mother. And they believe that we're all products of billions of spirit children that have been born, you know, up in in heaven. And then for them to take on a human body, to be here on earth, to go through, you know, the process here. And if you are worthy enough and you embrace the Mormon doctrine and do baptisms for the dead there in the temples, you do other things, give to the church. And as you are sealed in the temple for all eternity, they believe there's three heavens, the third heaven, the celestial heaven. And they'll try to point that out to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, there's celestial bodies, there's celestial bodies, there's heavenly bodies, there's earthly bodies. It's not talking about heavens. In 1 Corinthians 15, not at all. It's talking about the resurrection. That we will get new heavenly bodies when we are resurrected at the rapture of the church. And they will say there's seven levels actually in the third heaven. And if you are a good enough Mormon and do all these things, then you are sealed in eternity with your wife. Then you can become a god. That you can progress and become a god and that you can populate a planet and you can create a universe and have millions of spirit children. So that's their official doctrine. And you can show them from the scriptures that, first of all, you are not going to be a god. There's only one god from everlasting to everlasting. It's the oldest lie in the scripture. Really, Eve? Did God say that not to eat of that tree? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. So you can answer them and reason with them from the scriptures. So we're not given to marriage. And if you're here and you're thinking, well, you know, that kind of bums me out that, you know, me and my spouse, you know, we see as we're forever married. When we give vows, it's till death do us part. But I want to encourage you, if you're feeling a little bummed out by what is said here, that when you get to heaven to be with Jesus, you are not going to be bummed out because you're not married to your spouse. Because Jesus is going to be your bridegroom. 
And the relationships that we have with others will be so much deeper and richer than anything that you could have here on earth. You will be so thrilled and so fulfilled and so happy. It will be so glorious. There will be a great oneness with God's people. And you will be so happy when you get to heaven. That Paul says that there's a glory that awaits us that we can't fully understand. It's so glorious. When he went to the third heaven, he said that it's inexpressible. Words won't do justice. And as we know that there will be a total oneness and total agape, Jesus here says that there's not going to be marriage in heaven, not like here on earth. But let's get to the real issue, and that is the resurrection, verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. A couple of things. Back to Exodus, you know, the book that you guys do believe in, the first five books of the Bible, that God revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Abraham's dead, and there's no resurrection. There's no, you know, afterlife, so I was the God. No, I am the God. He still, you know, still as they continue on Abraham's bosom now in heaven. I'm the God of the living, in other words. And that's what we get to proclaim, that he is our God, and we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then second of all, I know I'm sounding a little redundant here, but it's an important principle for us to consider that they were astonished at his teachings because he took them to Scripture. And that's what you and I are to do. There are those who will come along and try to entangle you in your speech. There are those who will come along and want to debate with you and argue with you. But what you and I are to do, and what my prayer for all of us, is that whatever subject comes up, and there's a lot of hot topics, isn't there? There's a lot of voices that are out there. I think I've had, in this last year, more YouTube videos sent to me than ever before. Or social media, you know, you need to see this on social media. And listen, I'm not telling you that you should not listen to YouTube or this teaching, but are you studying the scriptures? And when it comes to any subject, can you open up the scriptures and explain to somebody about certain things? Because there are things that are weighing on people's hearts, and you know what they are. Whether it comes to the vaccine, whether it comes to wearing masks, you know, I have people every single week that are getting a hold of me. Should I take the vaccine? Should I not? What is, you know? And one of the things that I can do is I can explain to them from the scriptures when they have concern. You know, one of the things that people ask, should I take it? Listen, you don't need me to be your nanny. You go talk to your doctor. You look at the information. And half of you, you know, you know, a lot of you have certain convictions to take it. Some of you don't have convictions. You've studied it. You can make your decisions. Pray about it. Colossians chapter 3 says that as we pray about things, that Paul says, I pray that the peace of God rules in your heart. You know what that word rule means? It means a baseball empire. He's going to make the call for you. They give you a peace that rules in your heart. What does concern me is when somebody says, well, I was listening to these YouTubes, I was listening to this teacher, and I got the vaccine, and I lost my salvation because I took the mark of the beast. 
And can I open up the scriptures and I can tell them and I can give clarity and understanding to them that you didn't take the mark of the beast. That's for another time. You didn't lose your salvation. What do you mean God won't recognize you as his child? But I can just pray with them and encourage them. You see what I mean? Because we all got different convictions, don't we? And we got strong convictions. And so the mark of the beast is going to be in the tribulation period to where you won't buy and sell. We are going to see things happening that around us. That's why it's important to go through that Olivet Discourse, the signs that are happening, because we're going to see that government is going to put more mandates to where the time's going to come in the tribulation period. I don't believe we're going to be in the tribulation, that the Lord is going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. But there is that time where government is going to mandate. And that does concern me when we see more of these mandates, but it speaks of where we are headed. It's all going to be culminating in that period called Daniel's 70th week or the day of the Lord. So that's a study for another time. My point is simply this. As these topics come up, you're able to open up the scriptures and to talk with people and to show them. Show them what the scriptures has to say about these things. And the one that God's going to use today in the world in which we are in, with all the voices that are out there, is the one that is versed in the scripture, to be able to give God's word to others. Amen? And that's why we're going to stick to the scriptures here going through the word of God that we can grow in godly wisdom. And yes, we will have different convictions, but listen, we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. And I think that we've done very well as a church. We may not agree with each other on certain things in areas of liberty or whatever when it comes to masks and vaccinations and all this. But I want you to grow in the scriptures. And there are some of you that you have the faith to take it. There are some of you, you don't have the faith to take it. And I'm not going to be here to judge you, but I want to give you the clear direction of God's word and encourage you. And know this, that as we go to him, the wonderful counselor, Isaiah chapter 30, it says that as we go to him, that as we wait on him, then we will hear from him. You will hear a word that says, go to the left, go to the right. He'll give you direction for every area of your life. That's what's wonderful about being a Christian, is we have the Holy Spirit of God to speak to us. So here, as he's speaking to them, that as he says that, you know, you don't know the scriptures. So the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, they ask him these questions. And now as we continue in our study of Matthew, he, he comes uh, here comes the scribe, a lawyer, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So the lawyer comes testing Jesus, which is the greatest commandment he asked of all, perhaps trying to get Jesus to show neglect for uh, other areas of the law. And we need to send a representative that's well-versed in the law. Uh, not those Sadducees. They, they, they uh, weren't wise enough in the scriptures to ask Jesus. But we'll send this lawyer. In verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. 
And then the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is known as the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them, listen, teach them diligently to your children. So you love God. And as you talk to your children about the truth of God, because parents, you have the responsibility. It has been ordained to you and commissioned to you that you raise your children in the ways of the Lord. But as you do, as you're teaching them the word of God, and we'll come alongside of you and we'll help you and support you and we'll minister to your children the word of God in their classes. But you are the primary one that is to do that. But I also pray this, that they somehow see the love of God in you that they see the love of God that's coming from you, being displayed from you. And as we consider this, here is Jesus given, you know, the greatest is love God and you love others. This was the great Shema that was spoken during the feast. Mothers would hold their infants and say, the Lord thy God is one. Love the Lord. The Lord thy God is one. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The most important law is that you know the true and the living God and you shall love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus gave the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You love God and you love others. You know, back in these days and same today, the Jews loved to discuss which parts of the law were weightier than others. You see, the scribes had declared there were 613 commandments. 248 positive commandments, as many as the members of the human body. And then there were 365 negative commandments, as many as the days of the year. Total of 613 commandments. Now David, he comes along in Psalm 15, you can read it, and he reduces the commandments down to 11. Who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks up, you know, uprightly, he who works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, and so forth. Micah, in his book, takes it down to three. Micah chapter 6. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So it goes from the scribes, 613 commandments, to 11 in Psalm 15, to three in Micah chapter 6, to two, love God and love people. And then Paul says, he, he takes this concept from Jesus, and he says, all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this love, And that's what makes Christianity so wonderful because it's so simple. You love the Lord and you love others. And loving the Lord means that you're going to love his word and you're going to abide in his word. And in Mark's account of this, the lawyer said Jesus had correctly answered the question that the love of God and others is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifice. And Jesus responded by saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Somebody asked me the other day, why did it seem like that the Lord was so hard on Saul, the first king of Israel, as you read 1 Samuel? But with David, he wasn't. I mean, Saul did mostly what the Lord wanted him to do. He offered some you know, sacrifices that he wasn't supposed to. He was to destroy all the Amalekites. He brought back a guy. He did most of it. He brought back the best of the sheep and the oxen for offering. He wasn't to do that, but he did mostly what the Lord told him to do. David committed murder and adultery, and he hid it for a number of months. 
So why does it seem like that the Lord was so harsh on Saul, but forgiving and showing mercy to David? Well, there is a big difference. As you look at Saul's life, after that first, Corinthians, or first Samuel chapter 15, after he was told to destroy the Amalekites, he comes back with Agai. He had set up a monument to himself on Carmel. Yea, for me, I want to look good before the people. I want to be famous. I want to be seen before men. So he comes back, and, and there's Samuel saying, why didn't you perform what the Lord told you to do? And Saul said, I did. And you have not. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And God has rejected you. And Saul said, why is it such a big deal, Samuel? A lot of Christians can say that. That I did not do what God told me to do. I've sinned. But what's the big deal? I did mostly what God has told me to do. And it was Saul that said, Bless me before the people. In other words, I want to be seen before the people. Quit making a big deal out of this, Samuel, and rebuking me, and bless me before the people. This isn't looking good. He was into himself is what he was. David, when Nathan confronted him, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And I'll tell you the big difference between Saul and David. Saul never wrote a psalm. He never wrote a psalm. David had a heart after God. And he wrote so many psalms. Half of the book of Psalms comes from David as he pours out his heart to the Lord. I'm so grateful that we have his forgiveness and his mercy in our lives. But have a heart for him and love him. Because you will do more in love than you can ever do in just academics or your own flesh or your own striving. Yes, we're to know the scriptures. But to love God means that you're going to love his word. And it means that you're going to want to walk with him. So it's a heart issue. And these religious leaders, they just wanted to look good before men, but didn't have a heart for God. So now Jesus, he asked them a question. We're going to, to finish here quickly and as we finish chapter 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in his spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that time on did anyone dare question him anymore. So Jesus has had difficult questions asked him. Now he turns and asks them a question. And he says, when it comes to Messiah, how can he be both David's son and David's Lord? And to understand what Jesus was trying to drive home here, you need to know what the thinking of the Jews was. They were expecting Messiah to come. We've seen people call out to Jesus, son of David, son of David. They knew that the Messiah, that was a messianic term. They, they were crying out on, you know, the triumphal entry, Hosanna to the son of David, they would cry out. But they were really looking for the Messiah to just be a mere man, a, a man that perhaps would be a military leader, free them from the oppression of Rome, from the military, you know, uh, you know, submission of Rome and all of this to free them politically, nationally. That's what they were saying in the triumphal entry and waving the palm branches. We talked about that. They were expecting a greater than David to free them from their enemies. 
to usher in the kingdom. They didn't see Messiah as deity like we know him to be, fully God and fully man. Matter of fact, if you go to Israel today, you know, we've gone many times before, and we take our groups, and when we're in the old city of Jerusalem, sometimes you'll see some banners up that says, get ready, Messiah is coming. And if you have opportunity, if we take time to go into the shops and, and conversation starts, they love to talk to Americans. Matter of fact, Pastor Chuck was so well known in Israel. If you tell him, yeah, I'm Pastor of Calvary Chapels, oh, Pastor Chuck, we love Pastor Chuck. And they'll begin to talk. And if you ask them about that banner, you know, are you expecting Messiah to come? They will talk to you about it. And they will say that we're expecting a man to come on the scene that's going to free us from war, from our enemies around us. We're tired of war. To, 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 to be that man. That's why initially that the Antichrist will come on the scene as a man of peace, making a covenant Israel for a week. But they will end up rejecting him when he goes into the temple of God to be worshipped as God uh, there in Jerusalem in the tribulation period. Again, we'll talk about it more in the next weeks when we get to the Olivet Discourse. But they're looking for Messiah to come to be a man that's going to be a great leader like one they've never seen before. Here, as Jesus is answering them, quoting from Psalm 110, showing that David himself said by the Holy Spirit that David calls Messiah Lord, and Jesus had claimed more than just to be a man. His authority was from God, was from heaven, and part of the reasons the religious leaders could not tolerate Jesus is because he claimed to be more than man, but God also. I am that I am, God said to Moses at the burning bush. And then in John chapter 8, it was Jesus that said, before Abraham was what? I am. Title of deity. They picked up stones to stone him. He said, by what works do you want to stone me for? And they said, not for any works, but you being a man, make yourself out to be God. That was a bone of contention with the religious leaders. I want to leave you with this. There are people around us that they will say, oh, I embrace Jesus. He's a great moral teacher, you know, a great religious man, you know, a leader. I'm a Christian because I believe in his teachings, to love your enemies, you know, and, and I believe in the Beatitudes and all of this. Well, do you believe that he's divine, that he came and died for your sins, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? That is the issue. Are you willing to submit to him as Lord, as your Savior? Because he's the only one that can save and the only one that has provided forgiveness of sin. Listen, we're going to come to the communion table. And communion is remembering what Jesus has done for us in this new covenant. Allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And it's for the believer. And if you're a believer, you're welcome to take a communion. Um, you don't have to be a member of the church. You don't have to take classes and all of this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But listen, if you're here and you're not a believer, it will mean nothing to you. So we invite you to come to Jesus. Because he went to a cross shortly after this, and he died for your sins, and he rose again, and he is alive. And that's what we proclaim. And he is your hope. He is your salvation. He is your forgiveness that he provided by shedding his blood on the cross. And that is the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. And he loves you. And the invitation is to believe, to repent, quit going the direction you're going, and turn to him, call out to him, believe on him for forgiveness. 
right relationship with the Father because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me and the hope of eternal life. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for, Lord, um, these verses. We thank you for the great reminder of us being light and searching the scriptures and, and Lord, being established in truth. And the truth is that Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again, that he is our salvation, not a church, not ourselves, but he is personally. And as we get ready to come to the communion table, I want to give the invitation if there's anyone here, maybe you're listening, maybe you're not going to take a communion, maybe you're online or on the radio later, but you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. He is your salvation he is the Savior of the world. And the reason he came, God in the person of Jesus Christ, was to die for you because he loves you. And he went to that cross and he hung between heaven and earth and he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price. He was put into a tomb and he rose again and he conquered sin and death. Every other religious leader that has come on the scene, and there have been thousands of them throughout history, that they are all still in their tomb. Only Jesus would rise from the grave, validating what he did on the cross, that he truly is the Son of God. And he says, come this morning to repent, turn direction, turn to him, call out to him for salvation, for him to sit upon the throne of your heart as Lord and Savior. And you can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins, and I believe you rose from the grave. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior to sit upon the throne of my life. I want to know you and walk with you. I thank you for bringing me to the family of God, and I now give my life to you as I call out to you in Jesus' name. And for all of us, as we come to the communion table here, that we would remain in a, just an attitude of worship, that we would just, Lord, be thankful, and Lord, that we will remember this new covenant that we belong to, all by your grace and provision and mercy through Jesus Christ. Amen. The communion